welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. The mini-series now starting will be an exploration of the nature of evil. This follows the previous mini-series that has just ended on Young's answer to Job, in which he argues that light and dark, good and evil, actually exist in the Godhead, and the task of consciousness, that is of mankind, is to resolve these opposites. Or as Young said, quote, God is an affliction that mankind has to resolve, unquote. I wish to approach the question of the origin of evil in the human species in a rather different way. But as it will turn out, this will be ultimately consonant with Jung's view, although it will take some time to see this. Perhaps by tackling this immensely important question from another angle, the meaning of Jung's enigmatic argument will become clearer. At least, that is my hope. As to the consequence of evil in the human psyche, I am of the same opinion as Jung, that if it is left unquestioned, unopposed and unconscious, the result will most probably be an apocalypse of one degree of severity or another. Moreover, this horrendous prospect, though impossible to determine its timing, is, I believe, in our near future. So, let us begin. Creative and destructive forces, as Hindu and Egyptian mythologies indicated many thousands of years ago, exist as universal principles. At the broadest macro level, these forces underlie the cosmos itself, with the births and deaths of stars, galaxies, solar systems and planets. Astronomers believe that supermassive black holes lie at the centre of virtually all large galaxies, including our own. Imagine, science has given substantial evidence that creation and destruction are inseparable and probably necessary to one another. The fabric of creation in the universe is intimately bound up with darkness and destruction, which in turn is probably required for further creation itself. The concept that two opposites can be necessary to each other finds its most extraordinary expression in the famous yin-yang image, a dynamic balance of opposing but complementary and interconnected forces. For the ancient Chinese, this interpolarity was the essence of the cosmos, but also of our own bodies and consciousness. I find this metaphysical viewpoint compelling. The emergence of higher and more creative forms of life has been punctuated by many extinction events. Of the major ones, wiping out over 75% of life on Earth in the last 500 million years, that is since life began, there have been five. But such has been the creative life force on this planet that up to now, life has been able to recover and new species evolve. About 98% of all organisms that have ever existed on our planet are now extinct. All biological life is subject to death. Life could only have evolved with death as its companion. Biological life is temporary. These forces of creation and destruction, or creation and perishing as they are sometimes called, underpin life on Earth 
And since we have evolved from this earth, by implication, they underpin the consciousness of humanity. While creation and destruction exist throughout the cosmos, and creation and perishing exist in all life forms, good and evil can only exist in those beings with moral awareness and its prerequisite, ego consciousness, that is, consciousness with a subjective sense of self. The essence of evil in the psyche is the destruction of the good, which is the creative and life-giving in our species. The bad is not the privatio boni, translation, the absence of good, mentioned in Plotinus, St. Augustine, and adopted by the Christian Church, but in my view, perditio boni, the destruction of the good. Evil as an active, real force in human beings. Satan means adversary in Hebrew, and therefore, by implication, the satanic is that which is opposed to the life-giving and creative. The light of consciousness is only matched by its darkness. Let us begin with some preliminaries concerning alienation. The feeling of alienation or separation from some primal oneness and a consequent longing for a unity with something outside of ourselves is at the root of spiritual endeavour. The awareness of fractures, splits and divisions in ourselves and a desire to heal these states with a sense of unity is a perennial need. A state of separateness or alienation is therefore the result of the emergence and development of our consciousness, which by its egoic state separates out from the immersion in the greater whole and individualises, as a child individualises from the mother. The immensely creative phenomena of the birth of consciousness is at the same time an act of separation from the unconscious. And this is the first experience of darkness in the psyche. This is the early shadow of consciousness and the cause of much other negativity in the psyche. It exists at the phylogenetic level, that is, at the level of our species, concerning the evolution of consciousness in our race, as well as ontogenetically, the individual level, in the development of consciousness in infants and in their separation from immersion in the mother and their subsequent process of individualization. From this point of view, the Judaic myth makes sense. Consciousness is a separated state and is foundational to the rest of human negativity. That is, it is separated from nature, from the unconscious and from that which previously held it in a state of oneness. The impulse into consciousness is inherent in evolution and therefore some rupture or structural split occurs in the psyche which leaves mankind in a divided condition. Spiritual and much artistic endeavour is an attempt to overcome this split or death. It is not surprising that renewal, rebirth and resurrection motifs abound in the world's religions and arts. They respond to mankind's primal neurosis, 
separation and the emergence of consciousness. Lucifer, in the Judaic myth, is therefore interpreted here and by Gnostics as the impulse to consciousness. I'm presuming that the serpent in the Garden of Eden is Lucifer. This impulse into consciousness is neither evil nor bad, but an inevitable development out of and in opposition to the primal unity. Adam and Eve develop out of the Garden of Eden and in opposition to it, because they've broken its primary rule of remaining in the unconscious. It is differentiation, a separating off, a break from the original oneness, and it is a kind of death. The impulse into consciousness is also the achievement of godlike status with knowledge of good and evil, that is, consciousness. However, its consequences are dramatic, since mankind is compelled to answer or compensate for this state of alienation. It also lays the basis for so much that is later problematic in human consciousness. For example, the efforts to overcome the emptiness of alienation can produce excessive desire to be filled, to consume and to compensate for the separated state. We have miraculously evolved from nature. Evolution is creation in the long term, to use a phrase of Teilhard de Chardin. There has been recently a deep change in our scientific understanding of animal consciousness and of our evolution from primates. Mankind, as an evolved animal, shares instincts, many appetites, passions and fears with primates and other creatures. Carl Linnaeus, 1707-1778, the great Swedish botanist, said in his book Dieta Naturalis, quote, One should not vent one's wrath on animals. Theology decrees that man has a soul and that the animals are mere automata mechanica, but I believe they would be better advised that animals have a soul and that the difference between animals and human beings is of nobility. Unquote. Animal intelligence is also a platform for our own intelligence. Primates, especially our nearest relative to chimpanzee, have the capacity for the basic cognition that underlies the human mind. For example, the foundation of language and number. They have the capacity for an awareness of self and can have empathy and altruistic behaviour. They have a degree of autonomy and can also lie, rape, attack, torture and kill members of their own species. They can intensely bond with their family members and can recognise and be affected by the death of members of their species. So much of their behaviour is fundamental to what is, later in evolution, to be regarded as good and evil in humans. We have evolved from animals and therefore share part of our nature with primates who in their turn evolved from an older mammalian and then reptilian past. Much of human psychology has its distant origin in our animal past. Aggressive and sexual animal instincts are important parts of this inheritance 
and are so powerful they need to be controlled. Our instinctual life can be a serious threat to social order. Wild and primitive sexual forces are dangerous to social structure and are especially damaging when directed at the helpless and young. Aggressive and even murderous forces need to be prevented within the social structure, but then were channeled outwards where they were most useful in hunting and warrior activities. When civilization and its laws break down, the aggressive and sexual instincts can surface quickly, and there we see marked human evil. The idea that early mankind was essentially benign and peace-loving is, in my view, highly idealistic. The emergence and development of mankind's consciousness offered a vast arena for the enactment of basic passions, desires, greed and aggression, which we share with animals. It is through ego consciousness that an elaborated, magnified and sometimes distorted expression of man's animal appetites occurs. Thus, positive and peaceful parts of this inheritance, which are good, for example, nurturing, bonding, maternal and family instincts, become part of our psychology and social behaviour, even transforming and magnifying into love and selfless devotion. Negative ones, such as the attack and killing instincts, can become the basis for serious psychological disturbance, a distortion. The sexual instinct, for example, clearly has the capacity for magnification and distortion. What in an animal is a reproductive impulse, in a human can become obsession and deviation. Addiction is possible in many animals also, but in humans it becomes a dangerous and embedded part of many societies across thousands of years. The pecking order, for example, understandable in the primate group, becomes distorted and magnified in the human with distinctions obsessively sought in economic and military systems. These impulses and behaviour patterns have their foundation in our animal nature. There can even be pleasure or satisfaction in evil, since human beings have a vast capacity to indulge these appetites, sexual pleasures, desires and aggressions. Mankind can then become captured by desires and addicted Many addictions and distortions of the psyche originate in our bodies and craving for pleasure. Some originate in aggression, hatred, psychopathy and the infliction of pain and destruction on others. Some originate in pursuit of power, sexuality and aggression. Humans, besides inheriting these dispositions or appetites, have them magnified through our ego one of its roles being to serve the passions. As David Hume, the 18th century Scottish philosopher, said, and by this means to ensure the supply of narcissistic pleasures by which we try to define our existence. The ego is easily caught by the passions and then serves them. Hume's phrase was, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. Our primitive instincts are still with us 
and the majority of humans are dangerously bound into their tribal or nationalist systems, where they identify with their group and are willing to pursue violent and even terminal policies towards other humans. Badness and evil, perhaps better termed as human negativity, are as real a part of our nature as is love and goodness. Significant negative components come through the aggressive, selfish and destructive components of our animal inheritance as they are transmitted through the psyche, particularly when distorted. In addition, the emergence of human consciousness and the ego leave us vulnerable to anxiety and depression, which easily leads to aggression and distortion of the psyche's natural functioning. Of all creatures, the human infant is the most helpless for the longest period after birth. The emerging psyche, moreover, is especially vulnerable to deprivation of love and abuse, and this has serious destructive consequences. In addition, negative interuterine and birth experiences, interuterine is of course pre-birth, so pre-birth and birth experiences, can have profoundly damaging impact on the emerging child. After birth, we are very easily possessed by feelings of insecurity and abandonment, threats to our status or position in the family, the withdrawal of love and so on. We have also numerous defences against anxiety. The possibilities for the emergence of human negativity are obvious, given our considerable vulnerability, the result of our consciousness which in infancy has a delicate ego, so sensitive to rebuff, loss of loved and status. Some of this is also found in primates who undergo similar emotions in their family systems and groups. However, in the human, these dynamics are enormously magnified. Early emotional wounds cause damage to the emerging sense of self and produce defences to protect from further pain. These include withdrawal, denial, splitting, narcissistic compensations, and many more. The Luciferian and the Satanic are then, by implication, essentially different. Lucifer, the light carrier, is the impulse to consciousness and representative of the separated state of mankind's consciousness the fallen state in Judaic, Christian and Islamic theology, and the origin of our impulse to knowledge and consciousness. Satan, the adversary, is perditio boni, the destroyer of the good, that part of the psyche so capable of becoming distorted and which magnifies the appetitive, selfish and aggressive forces in our animal inheritance. At its worst, it is a psychopathic destruction of the goodness of life, and even of life on earth itself. And evil would be an appropriate term for this. Let us consider for a moment the shadow. Consciousness and the shadow tend to grow in parallel, especially as mankind moved from nature worship to patriarchal religions, which have extensive rules, laws, taboos, prohibitions and sins. The patriarchal religions in particular, by repressing the world of instinct and sexuality, created an enormous repressed shadow. Thus a split in the psyche appeared, on the one hand the ideal 
and on the other, the failure of the ideal and the darkness. Nowhere was this more apparent than in the realm of sexuality in the Abrahamic religions. In the development of Christianity, for example, one observes an increasing anti-sexuality in the early centuries of the Church. Original sin was interpreted as a sexual sin of temptation and fall. Woman was blamed for being the source of man's sexual desire, and onto her were projected man's fear and his own lust. The church regime was unremitting and pursued the very thoughts and innermost feelings of its believers. Even a sexual thought or impulse was considered sinful. Oregon, a prominent early church father, actually castrated himself so as to be free of his desires. Much of the writings of the early church leaders show a titanic struggle with sexual temptation, the essence of the diabolic. The Catholic Church instituted one of the most long-lasting forms of domination in the history of control systems, the confession. Members of the church were obliged to go to confession regularly, for example once a week, and confess their sins, frequently sexual in nature, but covering also a wide range of sinful appetites, desires, passions and aggressions. Having confessed, penitents would be blessed and forgiven their sins. If they were to die in that instant, they would go to heaven for eternity. If they died in the night, especially during concupiscence, without confession, hell could be their fate. Members of the church, at one point totalling most of Europe, were completely under the control of this system of thought in the Middle Ages. The Inquisition, that is, judicial institutions within the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, combated heresy and could at one point investigate, torture and have killed those they suspected of heresy, sorcery, witchcraft or even having views contrary to the doctrines of the Church. The so-called great religions have a long shadow. However, it is not only religions that create the shadow. The whole apparatus of law, social structure, control of behaviour at work, political systems and so on, all shape behaviour and thought. Civilization is the shaping of behaviour and therefore necessarily creates the forbidden and the controlled, which become the darker and repressed sides of the psyche. The shadow then is synonymous with repression. It exists at a macro level, as just argued, but it is also very much a micro-individual phenomena and is a most useful working tool in depth psychotherapy. The shadow is the unacknowledged and the repressed in the psyche. Strangely enough, at times it can also include the good and the potential of a human being which can also be denied and repressed. There can be no proper analysis of the psyche without investigation into this largely unconscious material. The way to work with the shadow in psychotherapy is totally different to the traditional repressive stance of religion. In depth psychotherapy, the task is to bring consciousness to bear upon the shadow, to allow it to speak. It often has layers underneath its repressed exterior that can lead to the liberation of the sufferer. Imagine... A religion that worked like this. 
instead of condemning, repressing and controlling thoughts and impulses. Suppose it brought the light of consciousness to the dark material, entered into genuine dialogue with it and became aware of the layers that lie beneath the shadow, including its healing core. Take sexual fantasy, for example, something so prevalent in the human species. With those suffering intense psychological problems, sexual fantasy material often has a meaning hidden in its repressed darkness. At its deepest level, this material has a healing impulse which is unconscious and expressed in sexual fantasy. A brilliant exposition of this is by Robert Stoller in 1986 in a book called Sadism, the Erotic Form of Hatred. Thus, there is frequently a light in the darkness, the challenges to reach it. The shadow in individual psychology is also the material repressed into the deeper psyche, not only by social structures and ideologies, the superego, but also by automatic defence mechanisms that try to deal with the painful, repressed or traumatic material in infancy and childhood. The same principles apply here. This material also needs to be brought to consciousness. Inner awareness and deep self-reflection need to approach this painful shadow material and dialogue with it until the hidden core is revealed. For example, underneath murderous anger may lie sorrow and the pain of rejection. The psychology of Seth in Egyptian mythology and Cain in the Judaic, who both murdered their brothers. In the case of Seth, he murdered Osiris. In the case of Cain, he murdered Abel. As Jung insisted, the more that shadow material lies undisturbed and unchallenged, and the greater the repressive force upon it, the greater its power to be projected outwards onto others. This is most notable between groups, such as races or nations, who easily project their shadow onto supposed inferior groups. So intense can this projection be that they may make other groups live out the projection to prove to themselves it must be true. This is technically called projective identification in psychoanalysis. Thus, for example, the Nazis in the Second World War could corral and lock the Jews into the Warsaw Ghetto, terrorise, starve, murder, and then televise them to prove to their own people how inferior they were supposed to be. The Nazi catastrophe had its psychological roots in the damaged German psyche. Longing for its narcissistic place in the colonial sun, Germany had already in 1914 provoked World War One. The harsh and humiliating conditions imposed on it in 1919 by the victors, the Treaty of Versailles, the economic deterioration of the country in the 1920s, hyperinflation, the chaos of its political system, the disintegration of its democracy, and the serious social deterioration laid the basis for the Nazi party to come to power. Out of disintegration came the grandiose need for reassertion of superiority, the archetypal narcissistic defence. The leader of the Nazi party, Adolf Hitler, was deeply narcissistically damaged with pronounced compensatory mechanisms that included grandiosity, megalomania and denial. 
In addition, he was a psychopathological and borderline personality with an extraordinary capacity for hatred, which he projected onto others. A very useful and amazingly predictive interpretation of Hitler's psychology was written by Walter C. Langer, called The Mind of Adolf Hitler. Highly recommended. Written in 1943 and used many of the above theories. He was not only a psychoanalyst, but an American intelligence officer also. His opinion during the war was that Hitler could very well commit suicide and that there would be a military coup against him. This was before the 1944 assassination attempt. And of course, in 1945, Hitler did commit suicide. To say that every country gets the leader it deserves would be a cruel indictment of the extraordinarily rich history of Germany and, of course, in many other countries who have suffered such dangerous leaders. That when countries suffer serious structural damage in their political and economic systems, the way becomes open for radical leaders of disturbed personality formation to bluff or manoeuvre themselves into power. And once there, it is very difficult to remove them. The consequences for Germany and the whole of Europe were disastrous. If this leader should have had access to nuclear weapons, which he missed by a small margin, world history, certainly European, would have been quite different. Yet, this immense and apocalyptical danger is precisely now what the world faces. <laughs>